Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 151 run. This cast as always is sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com with free shipping on orders of $100 or more and a sweet 25% buy list bonus. CoolStuffInc.com is the store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. I'm back this week finally. I know everyone missed all the jokes I've been making. And I'm joined, of course, with my two co-hosts, Ed Wynn of TalesOfAdventure.com and Jim Caselli of CoolStuffInc.com. How are you guys doing? Uh, we didn't miss you. Uh, uh, that's I, what we, I heard. We found that out very quickly before we even started the cast. I didn't even notice you were gone. Yeah. I, I heard a and saw a, a lot of good feedback on the Brainstorm Brewery Discord. Uh, it went something like, Jason says something, Jim says something, Ed ignores everyone and packages orders during the cast. So I didn't listen to it, but... Hopefully our listeners assume that's the right um, encapsulation of that episode. Anyway, we have a new set. We have two new sets. We have more spoilers. We have Brawl Precons. What do you guys want to talk about first? Where were you? Everywhere. And yet nowhere at the same time. That's impressive. I don't know how you do it. Yes. I was in Japan and a couple other countries just being a bum. I was in South Carolina for a while, too. Uh, I went golfing in Hilton Head. Um, and then Japan was free money. And the customs agent did not like how many booster boxes I brought back. So that was fun. But, yeah. Um, why? What were you up to while I was gone, Jim? Uh, trying to keep this podcast running so we didn't have like two or three weeks of uh, no episodes, but I didn't upload them. So like only if you watch them live or on YouTube, would you be able to see them? So I was like halfway there. And Ed had was, uh, what was it? GP Denver, AKA the 600 person Grand Prix this weekend. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, attendance was definitely suffering. Like, if anyone didn't notice, this was the least attended North American Grand Prix in, like, 13 years or something like that. It's been, I think, like, uh, someone posted statistics on Twitter. It's uh, been, like, six years since there's been a US GP under 700 players. There were quite a few GPs that were close and treading the line, but this was the first one under 700 since, like, 2012 or something. And this is the lowest attended one since 2006. Uh, that being said, Denver is fine. The venue is pretty good. Uh, it's at the Crown Plaza uh, by the airport, so it's pretty easy for people to get to, even though it kind of sucks to uh, do anything because you're probably a good solid 20, 30 minutes away from downtown. Uh, it has been at the Denver Convention Center once. That is in the heart of downtown, but to my understanding, it costs like almost three times as much as um, the Crown Plaza uh, Convention Center. Um, other than that, it was a fine weekend. Um, they were a little bit light on vendors. Uh, it's only it was only nine vendors compared to some of these shows that we saw last month: DC, Seattle, Dallas, that were eighteen, nineteen, twenty-two, or whatever. Um, other than that, it was a relatively uneventful show. Uh, M20 is, it seems to be like such low value. No one's actually buying it. 
you can't really buy booster boxes from people because no one wants to let it go. We are offering basically about $60. No one wants to let it go for $60. Don't really want to pay more than $60 because you can't open it and make money. And it's not like Shield Project is selling anyways. Um, other than that, I don't think there's much else going on that was of note over the course of the weekend. Yeah, it was interesting to see some of the buy list numbers that you guys were paying this weekend. You were paying 11000 on Lotus, 75000 on Dominaria boxes, which is pretty high. Um, stuff like that. One of the interesting things was that Modern Horizons singles have started to tank a bit. There's rumors coming out that distributors don't have that much left. Um, but at the same time, it, it seems like a lot of shops can just order as much as they want at the same price point which is what matters. It doesn't necessarily matter how much distributors have in stock to sell to shops. It matters what price point they're selling them to shops at. Because as long as shops can get um, boxes of Modern Horizons for the same price, singles can't go up as long as you have a continuous supply of booster boxes to open at the same price. And what we saw with Renin 6 going up, uh, you guys were paying 75, I think, throughout the weekend is it became extremely profitable for just random casual people to open Modern Horizons. And if they open enough boxes, the drop rate was enough that they made money. So we've seen a slide of Modern Horizons uh, canopy lands down about 2 to $3 per copy. And personally, I think that's a, a short-term thing. I think these cards will continue to trend up um, next year. But are you still pretty confident on Modern Horizons, Ed? Uh, I think so. I think um, I think the nature of it, even if EV goes up, it doesn't quite become appealing enough uh, to crack. Uh, we more or less can envision that if we just say Ren 6, the big lottery ticket, is the equivalent of opening up a masterpiece. Um, you open up one Ren 6 roughly every two and a half, three boxes. That's approximately the same pull rate as a Masterpiece. You don't exactly see people going out and busting boxes of Keldesh and Aethervolt when they're standard. Uh, granted, the floor is a little bit higher. Um, there's still a lot of ways you can mitigate the cost of the box. Right, Opening Urza is still fine. Opening up the Campy lands, you open approximately three of them per box. Right, You're recuperating a small amount of your cost there. Um, the foils have a very, very high multiplier, especially any of the foil mythics. Um, Yogmoth Grand Physician is a big one. That one is, I think, like so, like eighty plus dollars on TCG Player. Urza is still over hundred on TCG Player. Prismatic Vista is hundred dollars on TCG Player. Um, all foils, obviously. Um, but there's definitely a lot of ways you can make up the cost. But I don't think it's necessary enough for people to want to be opening boxes in mass yet. One, because your cost is pretty high. Um, and I I don't think the variant is quite able to smooth itself off enough that, again, it, that it becomes truly possible to be opening up boxes yet. Um, that may change over this weekend. I do suspect that Barcelona will bring some sort of new spicy tech to modern. Um, that, may, that, may, that may push uh, Modern Horizon boxes over the edge to a point where people do want to start cracking them, but that remains to be seen. That being said, I do feel very confident about the state of Modern Horizons right now. 
And speaking of M20, we've seen Leyline of the Void basically go down below buy-less numbers at the latest GP Denver. Leyline of Sanctity is dead. I don't know if Jim plays uh, Leyline of Sanctity or Leyline of the Void in EDH, but foils are surprisingly affordable with the new drop rate coming from M20. I've seen foil promo um, Leyline of the Voids for $15, and I've seen set foils for like 16 to 17 Um no, late lines are not like particularly good in Commander because you only have one copy in your 99 card deck. So you're unlikely to actually put it into play on turn one. Um, like if you wanted something like Leyline of the Void, I think that there's a ch enchantment from like Urza Saga or something that does something similar. And it's called like Planner Void. Oh, I remember that. That card's great. Yeah. So, I mean, that card costs one and the. Uh, well, I guess it affects everyone, so it affects you as well, but that hard costs one, and Leyline of the Void costs four, and they both do more or less the same thing, unless you care about your own graveyard, and in which case, I don't know, like, I think Ashiok is probably, like, one of the more premier cards to be playing, um, if you're really worried about people's graveyards in general, um, I don't think you'd play Leyline of the Void until you've already been playing Ashiok and Bajuka Bog and Scavenger Ground, so, like, these, these like the only one that people are actually playing in Commander is probably Leyline of Anticipation, uh, because that card's pretty unique and there's not actually a lot of cards that you can play to replace that other than Videlkin Orrery, and that card's quite expensive. Ed, have you noticed more foils being sold to vendors with the new foil drop rate? Um, what I've actually noticed is that. Uh, in the process of sorting cards, uh, uh, I think some of the buyers instantly seem to be just buying cards, buying M20 rares or, you know, cards from the curated list that have the stamp from the, uh, the promo pack. And it's kind of annoying because you actually can't list it. Because um, on TCG Player, uh, there's actually a separate listing for, um, for these cards. Like, if you look at... Uh, Cavalier of Thorns, for example, there is Cavalier of Thorns uh, normal, there's Cavalier of Thorns in foil, you have Cavalier of Thorns in pre-release promo, and Cavalier of Thorns in stamped, uh, stamped promo, and then Cavalier of Thorns in foil stamps. Um, there's a bunch of listings that a lot of people don't seem to notice. I don't know if it just kind of slips in, but it's kind of a pain, again, because they're technically separate items. They're separate titles, so you can't just really group them together. Um, not really a fan of the new stamping process. One, because it just creates just so many different items. And I do imagine that there will be people who order a regular Cavalier Thorns and just get shipped the stamped Cavalier Thorns. Um, that will probably be unhappy about, probably because the store either bought it without noticing and then the employee designated with listing the item probably didn't think of it as a separate item. They probably just assumed that this is a Cavalier Thorns, not foil. And listed as such, and then when it comes time to pull, it's you have another chance for error of someone seeing just looking at the pull sheet and saying Cavalier Thorns, oh, and then just pulling the first Cavalier Thorns without realizing that the stamp Cavalier Thorns is different than a normal one that you open out of a pack. Um, so, um, I think a lot of foils are being sold as a result again because that because you can open those in a pack as foil, 
and have it stamped. Uh, wow, that is there's quite a bit of lighting outside. This is kind of crazy. Um, and it looks like you're recording from a cave. It's okay. Um, it it was like ninety degrees when I got here earlier, and now it is storming outside. Now it's lit. Are you recording. in Florida? Because that's like every day in Florida. I am in New York City. Um, I mean, that's like close to Florida. That's about as far away from Florida as you could get. New York um, City is flyover country, right? Uh, I think that's where you live, Jeremy. <laughs> um, no, that's anyway, like next to where he lives. Anyways, like to sum it up, I'm like really not a fan of the stamping process. I think there's just like, it just adds more foils into circulation and that further devalues standard foils, which were already heavily devalued. Um, uh, cards like Leyline of the Void, Leyline Sancti, these are slightly better ones that have more eternal applications. But a card like, you know, people come up uh, asking if we bought foil versions of cards on our uh, hot list, and I basically told them that the standard uh, foils basically have no premium. Um, so that's a little that's a little rough on. Uh, to explain to people, but I think that's just kind of the nature of just so many different foils and promos and these just various oddity items that just make their way to circulation. And speaking of oddity items, we now have a collector's booster pack that is going to be anything but collectible, most likely. Because it feels uh, like when they say this is collectible, that means it isn't collectible based on previous trends. Jim? What do you mean you think it's not collectible? I think it's just like it has all the weird stuff from the set in it. So uh, let's let's start out by saying what happened this weekend. So there was an announcement at San Diego Comic-Con for the newest set, which is called Throne of Eldraine, I believe. And it's a set inspired by Grimm's Fairy Tales and Camelot. So we saw like a Rapunzel card and a little red riding hood card and um snow white and you know all that stuff just like if you like know all the old disney movies it's going to be all of those characters and then like i don't know the all the other weird fairy tales it's like basically shrek the set but without shrek it's like all the other characters but what they're doing this is um, they're basically putting all the cool stuff that they've been putting in weird supplementary products into the same set so all of the Planeswalkers are going to be available in borderless versions. Uh, a bunch of cards are going to have extended art cards. There are special cards called something that I don't remember. What What is the, like, the premium frame called? Give us money. No, that's not the name of the frame, you bum. What's the name of the frame? I, I, I think they just labeled it as like alternate art. I think they described as Planeswalkers would have the, uh, the borderless extension. I don't know if there was actually an official name given out to the like flowery frame that was on the... Uh... Yeah, no, it, de it definitely has a name. I just don't... I'm going to go look it up. Our um, whole casket... or All the listeners get to listen to Jim Scroll for five minutes straight. Yeah, I'm doing my best. Basically, uh... they're coming out with a Camelot-themed set because players have... Uh, been having a problem at their pre-release as far as they weren't having an enjoyable time with like 
War of the Spark Limited. So Magic finally gave players um, a set where you can have a good night. Stop it. Uh, they're called the showcase frames. So they are um, just alternate art, alternate frame versions of uh, excuse me, existing cards. So all of the cards with all of these different art possibilities are still part of the set, but they're not... They're just different versions of the same cards. So uh, the collector booster is a special booster that I think is supposed to be retailing for like between $20 and $25, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a special booster pack that has a bunch of those special things in it. In fact, it has multiple of them usually. So uh, according to the Wizards of the Coast website, it includes 15 cards and one foil token card. Uh, one card is a rare or mythic with extended art from the set. One of them is a foil, rare, or mythic. Nine of them are foil, commons, and uncommons. Uh, three of them would be special frame cards, so they'll either be showcase or borderless planeswalker cards. Uh, there's one ancillary card, which I believe is going to be one of the specific, like one of the brawl specific cards from the brawl decks, and then the one foil token. Uh, so it's a lot of like weird stuff. This this booster pack will have at least two rares. Up to five, I believe, in in a single or I guess six. There could be six rares in this pack, or mythics. Um, so, I'm assuming that the um, variance on it is going to be extremely high. But it's similar to the all foil Alara pack, where like the contents of the pack will be better than what you would normally get. But this is not a draftable booster pack. Uh, it's specifically not for that. But all of these cards will also appear in the set, with the exception of the brawl specific cards, uh, at some amount of rarity. I don't, I don't know. But basically, like the showcase specific cards will appear in the booster packs as showcase versions, replacing exactly those cards some amount of the time. I don't know uh, exactly what it is, but basically, it's just like a bunch of extra versions of cards that already exist in the set, which is, I think, both good and bad. Um, one of the things that I've tried to say for a while is I think that Wizards of the Coast should take the Pokemon TCG approach to uh, printing cards where the Pokemon sets have, um, like, their premier cards are called EX cards generally or GX or, like, whatever. They're, like, there's some, there's some very rare or relatively rare powerful Pokemon cards, uh, and there are multiple versions of them of increasing rarity and... They have different borders and different finishes to make them more desirable. What that ends up doing is a lot of people will end up trying to buy the booster boxes to pull those expensive, like, full art or um, rainbow GX cards, and that will cause the rest of the booster box and the normal versions of the cards to not be worth nearly as much money. Um, so their premier-level cards, like, even in the most expensive decks, are probably, like five to six dollars uh for like you know the top tier decks lowest rarity version of the card whereas the highest rarity version of the card could be like 45 50 60 dollars depending on what kind of what pokemon it is and how prevalent it is in the metagame so this allows um people that want to spend extra money on their decks to get the coolest version of the card that they want but also keeps the 
less cool versions, less expensive. Um, but that only works if the cards are desirable, which, as we've seen from standard foils, doesn't always lead to that being the case. Like, the fact that you can buy a Cavalier of Thorns for, like, $10, and you can buy a foil Cavalier of Thorns for $12 leads, people, leads me to believe that most people are not interested in getting the coolest version of their card for their standard deck. Uh, that might still be the case going forward, and these cards might not be worth very much more than the, the regular versions, and that would just not help the situation very much. But I don't know what your guys' opinions on this is. I sort of agree with you there. Um, Ed, you're going to say something? Uh, yeah, I, I think this is one of those things that uh, it's much more prevalent in Japanese-type TCGs. Uh, Pokemon is the most obvious one that we look at, but a lot of the different ones, um, a lot of the Japanese TCGs, a big part of how they market their game and the way they attract people is that you can, the entry level for the game is relatively low if you just want, um, if you just kind of want like your basic version, the equivalent of a non-foil magic, um, but you can work your way up to... Uh, uh, in Pokemon, you have uh, half arts, which is the basic, the most, the most cheapest version, um, and then you have full arts, which is more or less an extended version of that. And then you have a hyper rare uh, for the most current iteration, which is the card is um, it looks it has like a the entire card is like a rainbowish hol um, holographic, um, and uh, uh, those are quite rare. But um, by doing this, it allows it keeps people wanting to pull boosters. It's equivalent of masterpieces. There's a lot more appeal on them. Uh, they're obviously not for everyone, but due to scarcity, um, they do hold their value pretty well. And a lot of TCGs do kind of have this. Um, I think the introduction of foils and when they started introducing the master, excuse me, the master's pack, which had one foil in every pack, um, foils have kind of lost their luster. Um, if you go back to kind of like the kind of the pre-modern era, um, a lot of the old foils are quite expensive because it was actually quite difficult to open foils back then. Uh, opening foils, you basically had to either open up a tournament pack, which guaranteed you one foil, um, or you just had normal drop rates in your booster packs. Um, and uh, it, it, it was just kind of a different animal back then. I think there was a lot more appeal in collecting cards. Um, foils were generally worth more then, but now that, you know, especially with like this, the stamp promos now, we just have so many variations of foils that I think it just has kind of deterred people from wanting to collect them as much. And we have, what, two more products in the next month, at least? We're getting like 1.5 products per month, it feels like. Yeah, that's definitely like part of the issue um but also the fact that they keep releasing like stuff like the um the mythic editions where they did like the really cool extended art full foil planeswalkers but they don't exist in booster packs which means that like if you really wanted the coolest version of any particular card it was not as exciting to try to open standard booster packs uh, I think like the Japanese planeswalkers are like the most recent thing that will be similar to what they 
what this what this showcase stuff and this border stuff is going to be like uh with the exception that like obviously this will be in all languages instead of just in japanese them being more available i think might like them less desirable but i think that there is definitely a market for uh alternate art and cooler art and extended art cars so they could still do really well Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see what's going to happen with that. I know Ed has obviously been to Japan, but Magic doesn't necessarily even seem like the number one game there a lot of the time because it's only competitive there. There's not really casual in Japan that much. Um, I think there's a point that we'll see that we'll look back and we'll be able to pinpoint when Magic started copying Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh more where you look back and you go, wow, there's like 10 different frames now for the game. I remember when Masterpieces first came out, players were complaining that they didn't look like Magic cards. They called them, remember, Invocations looked like Yu-Gi-Oh cards to a lot of players. So I think if we keep getting new frames, a lot of people are going to look back and go, oh, they're starting to do the Pokemon tins, which is essentially what this collector thing is, in my opinion. Um, but we'll see what happens. I actually sort of liked when masterpieces were in booster packs and cards were dirt cheap because it was cheaper for players to buy decks. If you remember Battle for Zendikar, like Ulmog was 20 bucks, Gideon was 12, and everything else was dead. Well, there was like some weird stuff where like some decks were insanely expensive because the cards from the like the a large majority of those cards came from sets that were not that didn't have masterpieces. So like the cons of Tarkir, Battle for Zendikar standard, the the like most expensive standard deck was like thirteen hundred or twelve hundred dollars or something like that because it was yeah. like twelve fetch lands, a bunch of duels to fetch, four collected companies, four Jace, and and those like Jaces were like a hundred dollars or more at the time. So like, there are definitely downsides to this. Um, well, there there they. I don't think I don't mean that there's downsizes. I misspoke. There are definitely situations where decks will still not be very cheap, although they are pretty cheap right now. Hmm. Ed, um, I don't know if I necessarily agree that uh, that masterpieces were best implemented in packs. I think it made it a little bit too swingy um, in the sense that it kind of, it deterred a lot of stores that weren't able to open up a lot of packs uh, to be able to open up uh, the product they needed for singles if they weren't getting it. Um, I have, if anyone remembers the EV on a boxes and the car, there was a point when quite literally the only thing you could open up to break even on the cost of a... Or to, that would be worth more than the value of a pack was basically Gideon. Uh, Gideon at Ulubog. Um Like, everywhere was completely worthless. The Battlelands were like dollar to two dollar cards even when they were both played um i i do understand what wizards was trying to do with masterpieces um i think they were cool when they were first there um but i think kind of the various iterations they've gone through i don't necessarily think collector boosters are the best way to implement this i think that um at 20 to 25 dollars i think that's just far far too expensive of a product um, to be able to produce in mass um, and to be able to turn over quickly. Um, that 
that I know how else they will introduce masterpiece esque item into um, into the game, but uh, I think we just have to kind of wait and see and see how it pans out. Um, uh, this is slightly different than what we had with previous sets because um, it sounds like the only way you can actually get the premium foils are from collectors boosters themselves. Uh, so you have your just you, you almost if you feel almost feels like you have like two different sets. And I imagine that a lot of people will gravitate towards one or the other. You'll probably have the people that actually care about getting the premiums showcase foils or those planeswalkers um, to be buying some of the collector boosters and then buying the singles they need to round their set. And then for the people that, excuse me, that just care about playing Magic, that just kind of want access to the cards they need for standard, they'll be focusing on the standard product that is available instead. Yep. Anything else, Jim? Nope. Okay, well, we don't have a credit winner this week. Jim, do you want to explain why? Uh, yeah, uh, Jeremy was not on the podcast, so uh, we didn't upload the podcast anywhere for a credit winner to be picked. So where can leave? Where where can leave? Where can people leave questions for next week? And are we going to pick multiples or something? Uh, you can leave a question in uh, Missouri MTG's uh, DMs, and no. then <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can leave a question on coolstuffing.com, the page uh, for our podcast that will go up hopefully tomorrow. And we may pick multiple people. It's a free $25, people. Why wouldn't you comment? You know? Um, yeah. Other than that, we've talked about the new set and all that stuff. Um, Ed, you guys were paying $110 on Taiga this weekend, if I remember correctly. Is that card starting to go up because of Renan's Sex and Legacy? Uh, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, that's more or less the driving factor. I think there's kind of been a resurgence in demand for lands cards, so cards like uh, uh, Exploration, Mox Diamond, Tabernacle, these are all cards that have certainly surged forward. The price hasn't necessarily changed on them, but it's really led to more people asking about them, whether that means people trying to get their their playset of Explorations or their fourth Mox Diamond or, or the Giga Cheap Tabernacle or something. Um, I've definitely noticed the search on it since Red Six has, has come out. Um, I imagine Taiga is one of those cards that uh, it's a duel. They're relatively liquid, and Taiga is... Um, if it turns out that land decks are what you want to be doing in Legacy right now, then Taiga is... Um, there There could definitely be a kind of a bump up in Taiga, kind of elevating it from being a garbage tier duel to kind of a mid-range duel on par with like Badlands or something. So if you don't have them and your shops had one in the case forever, doesn't hurt to haggle is basically what Ed is getting at here. Right? Maybe, maybe not. More or less, more or less. It's, I, I think it doesn't hurt to pick one or two up right now. Um, the Landstex already played one. I think it could go up to playing like two or three. So um, if that is the case, if it does become a standard, that that's 
the correct number of Tigers. Uh, I do expect that we'll kind of see a bump in the price uh, probably in the near future, probably in the next month or two. Sure. And we also should talk about where the spark sheets. Basically, everyone's gotten one to two sheets now. No one really knows. It's selling for half of what all of us thought it would be selling for. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on where the spark sheets? You picking one up, you selling yours, etc. What is half of what we thought it was? They're selling for like 140. And I remember us talking that it would be like 250, 300. Um, I mean, that still seems like a lot of money for what is essentially a collector's item. Uh, I own one and I'm going to frame it and hang it somewhere, but I have no intentions of buying a second one. I, I don't, I don't know why anyone would want to, unless they're like trying to cut it up. But like, I don't know that the cost of the cards on the sheet makes it worth it. Uh, I think once people were trying to go out and sell their sheet, you had there were probably multiple barriers to overcome. The first barrier is, did your sheet arrive in an acceptable condition? Right. I saw some of the pictures that people had posted on Twitter and Reddit. Some people got very very mangled sheets, uh, just severe creases, uh, kind of along the outer edge where it had the sheet had basically pressed against the edge of the tube and it just caused it to kind of crumple inwards. Um, and then assuming you got a sheet that was in decent condition, uh, you also had to uh, go out and sell it. You had to find someone that wanted to buy it. Uh, I saw a lot of people having um, basically only wanting to sell locals uh, to someone that would be able to pick it up in person because most people sort of realize that if you had to go out and get a tube and ship it, it was actually a substantial amount of money. Uh, that was probably more than what people were willing to pay to sell the sheet um and then people who are framing it uh if you've never had something professionally framed before it is quite expensive um you can always go to michael's and just use like a 30 percent discount or 40 percent discount whatever they do and do it yourself but one it looks pretty bad and two if you have it framed um it depending on where it is uh most pictures would deteriorate over time because of the glass it's used for higher uh, for high end art. Um, and most professional framers they use a either a museum glass or a glass that protects the picture from UV. Uh, both of those are quite expensive to do, and on something that's the size of a sheet, uh, the glass is the majority of the cost. And for what I've seen, like most people who had it professionally done. Um, you're probably looking upwards of three to four hundred dollars to have that on your sheet, which is far, far more than what the sheet is worth. So um, mine is currently just sitting on the floor somewhere in my house. I'm not sure where it is anymore. Um, I had a few things I was trying to get framed, and the the one that I just cared the least was the War of the Spark sheet because one is kind of an odd thing to have hanging up in my mind, and two. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to frame to spend three to four hundred dollars framing something that's worth sub two hundred. Yep, it's just interesting to see what's happening with these sheets. But yeah, a lot of people are on the marketplace trying to sell these right now. Um, I guess we can move on. Vegas is coming up in less than a month. 
actually a month and two days. Um, and normally after Vegas, prices start dropping a lot, as we saw last year. And are there any steps you are taking to insulate yourself from potential card prices falling again towards the end of the year? No. If, <laughs> if I, I mean, I think one of the things that people don't understand well enough is that um, people are failing to understand the concept of sunk costs. Um, if you're trying, if you buy collections and you sell cards, uh, whatever you invested into it is a fixed cost, no matter what. Trying to wait and hope that, you know, I, if I overpaid on a card, I should wait for the price to rebound uh, for whatever reason, for whatever reason that caused it to, the price to go down in the first place, whether it be uh, just slow sales, uh, a reprint, whatever. You should just sell it. Um, most people are too attached to trying to make money on every single card. Um, instead, people aren't realizing that. The money that you spent on the card doesn't matter in the future. By not selling it and letting it sit there, you're actually going to be losing more money long term. Um, I will aggressively price cards to sell cards because the money it goes much, much, much further than just having cardboard that sits around. Um, I am willing to sell cards at a loss if I have to, if that means getting out of a toxic spec or a reprint that I got burned on or whatever. Um, so I like to kind of back up and answer your question directly. Um, we all know that the, uh, that the fall months are worse. October is a notoriously bad month for online sales. Uh, people prep towards uh, the holidays. People start looking at saving money for Christmas gifts, uh, winter travel, these various things. Uh, October just does very, very, very poorly. Um, in light of trying to, uh, in light of having uh, the fall set trying to help kind of bolster sales, um, there's not really much you can do to insulate yourself. You should just recognize that, hey, if if your business is heavily online sales through uh, eBay, TCG Player, etc., um, you just have to accept that you will have slow months. You just have to try and churn through and make up for store sales via volume rather than margins. Um, and yeah, it does kind of suck um, if you had paid high, if you had paid high prices during the summer and you're, and it's kind of coming back to bite you if you haven't sold anything by September, October. But that's just kind of the nature of this. It's more important to have good turnaround time and good turnover rather than trying to maximize your margin on every single car that you sell. Yeah, it's also going to be interesting to see what happens with the influx of arena players, especially in, what, 25 years when arena finally becomes playable on um, Max or Moto. So that should that should help a lot um, as well because basically every shop owner has anecdotal evidence that arena is helping. So casual cards are selling great. Cannot complain. And once again, that's just anecdotal evidence. But if you look at a lot of the gaming shop Facebook groups, there's a lot of new players pretty much everywhere. So the fact that they put um, arena codes inside the pre-release kits for M20 really helped drive local attendance where you got six booster packs for free. I don't know, Jim, I'm assuming you took advantage of that. 
or did you not pre-release for M20? Uh, I didn't have time. I had some other stuff going on, so I didn't end up doing it. Should have DM me for an arena coat, Jim. I gave out like 200 arena booster packs. I didn't say that I didn't get an arena coat. I said I didn't do the pre-release. Oh, sneaky, sneaky, Jim. Uh. <laughs> it was six yeah. booster packs. It's been like getting a little bit worse each time. Like, not that I'm complaining about free things, but like... You are literally complaining I, about free things. I am just Especially explaining that it has gotten worse. I'm not, like, unhappy with it, though. Sure. They gave they got a, gave out a free sealed, then they gave out a free draft, then they gave out six booster packs. It's not quite the same. Okay. Um. Yeah, it is just interesting, Ed, because I feel like a, last year, a lot of vendors and speculators went too hard on the reserve list and got burned towards the end of the year. And now it definitely feels like vendors are being more cautious with their buy lists and um, leaving a little more room to make money. So I think just kind of the nature of it has changed. Uh, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people aren't willing to keep up with the current times. Um, I've done GPs long enough. I've seen plenty of vendors come and go. Um uh right uh <laughs> um it, it's a, it's a hard it's it's a hard thing to keep up with the uh the game store industry and just kind of being in the hobby slash collectible industry is one that is uh not particularly lucrative no one is doing this to make millions um and the turnover rate is quite high. Um, Millions of bulk cards, Ed. It's all about the long term. Yeah, I see plenty of stores that just that just don't make it. Uh, and again, part of that is due to not being able to adapt. Um, you always get diff- you always get various curveballs thrown at you. And I think a lot, just like a lot of small to medium tier stores, aren't approaching approaching this industry with the right business mindset and i think uh it's one of those things that becomes very uh very easy very easy to see um just early on to see which stores will succeed and which stores just aren't aren't gonna make it yeah so for example i'll give a i think ed's in this group i think it's a public group so i don't think i'm saying anything dumb there's a tcg player um pro facebook group and if you sell on tcg using pro should probably be in it um one of the shop owners was complaining that his employee wasn't packing orders fast enough and i think the owner of tales of adventure who does not sponsor this podcast said that like his pull rate was double or triple whatever this guy's pull rate was and the guy's like well how is that possible and the owner replied with, well, what, have you tried sorting the sets, not alphabetically, but how TCG player processes them for direct orders? And then the other guy was like, wait, you do that? And he's like, yeah, it saves me a ton of time and makes it more profitable. So little changes like that, which are publicly known things, can really help you make money as a shop versus just wasting time. Like I know TCG sellers who still handwrite their own address on envelopes. And that takes like, who knows how much time, like you would potentially have to be packing orders during a podcast and forget what people are saying in in order to keep up. You'd have to just be writing your address all the time on envelopes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anyone who does that at all. Uh, 
I I like don't pack that many orders at all ever, and I still print the label because like that's way less work. Yeah. Also, it's way more legible than my handwriting and most also, people's yeah. handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, like I'll have less chance of it getting lost in the mail or sent back to you know the vendor or whatever. So yeah, it's the little things where people innovate, like FBA, which basically everyone knows about, is another way that a lot of businesses are stepping up their game. And you've seen people like Thomas Dodd from Card Advantage like take full advantage of that and you know do pretty well with his MTG blueprint. So yeah, anything you want to add to adapting in an online economy, Ed? Not really. Uh, I think that some of these uh, people probably should learn through trial and error. Uh, I, I don't think a lot, enough people are looking at their costs. There's a lot of ways that you can save um, that you can save on little edges, especially if you're working in volume. Um, just shifting how you how you purchase items, uh, utilizing credit card rewards to make sure that you're as a business you're getting some either some amount of cash back or you're getting points in a way that is redeemable towards furthering your business. Uh, these are all little strategies that I'm sure all the big vendors know about, but uh, some of the smaller vendors that are struggling uh, can probably find ways to either make their business uh, more efficient, be able to work cheaper, or um, find ways to increase your revenue. Uh, again, a lot of this trial and error, um, your, the resources that are out there, they're like, there are places where you can access and find this information. But it's hard to it's it's hard for a lot of people to know because most people probably aren't critical enough of their own processes to identify what they're doing wrong, and sometimes they don't realize they're doing something wrong until it's too late. Occasionally, buying and selling magic cards is super easy money, but a lot of people don't understand how much stuff goes into work behind the scenes. So, like, someone will walk into a game shop and they'll see, you know boxes with every set and they go, I want this card and the employee pulls that card, the employee prices that card. And then, you know, that's a sale, but they don't look at how long it took to alphabetize those cards, the overhead, etc. So when you want to dip your toe into the big boys pool, it can be a little overwhelming at first, uh, inventorying all that stuff. We got time for one, one more, or uh, one more topic or we can go in a pick of the week. Dealer's choice. <laughs> Anything you want to talk about, Ed? No, not particularly. Um, we always experience this kind of towards the end of the years. Uh, we're basically at just the tail end of standard. No one cares about standard anymore. I imagine that's a big part of why Denver suffered as a GP. Um, like Denver is actually very, very easy to get to. It's a major hub. It's somewhat central. Um, but the time of it was just very poor. The fact that a lot of my friends in California didn't go because San Diego Comic-Con also was over the weekend was also a huge deterrence for people. Um, like people don't really want to buy magic cards right now uh, until they know more of what's going to be in the falling fall set. Um, so standards just kind of at a dead end. Uh, most people are probably just, again, just waiting uh, for Commander to come out. That's kind of the, the next newest thing. And then, obviously, with Throne of Eldraine coming out in September, but that's that's still like two months away at this point. Um, so 
it's a bit of a dry spell. There isn't much to talk about. It's things are relatively low key in terms of magic finance. So I don't really think there's much else that we can talk about that's particularly relevant. All right. Well, let's get into the pick of the week. Ed, what you got? Uh, for one who did tune in last week, I had said that there's quite a few cards in standard that I won't be focusing towards um, towards rotation that are cheap now that will probably be good. Uh, last week I looked at uh, Ravnica Legions cards. This week I think from Guilds of Ravnica, um, Aurelia, Exemplar of Justice, Doom Whisperer, uh, Ral is it Viceroy and Thousand Year Storm. These are all cards that are sub three dollars. Um, I think if you look at playing standard in the fall, buying like a playset of these cards are all probably just like very very low key investments. You're unlikely to lose money. Worst case scenario, worst case scenario, you buy list them at this time next year for probably not that far off from what you paid. Best case scenario, one of these cards become relevant. Um, like if. Um, like Arc Light Phoenix is still available. You obviously lose some tools. You obviously lose things like Op that make the deck powerful. But with Arc Light Phoenix, the format, I imagine uh, certain, some things will shift and you'll still be able to make the deck work. Uh, Ral does see some fringe play in the deck. Thousand Year Storm is probably a bit too expensive to be good. But these are the cards that have potentially a very high ceiling. And at the cost they're at right now, if it you know, spend, go go out and spend. I did, was it that's like four cards. Go out and spend like fifty, sixty dollars just to get the cards you need out of the way. And if you have deeper pockets, I don't think it hurts to get, you know, twenty copies of these cards just to tuck away. Because again, worst case scenario, if you if you decide to cash out on them in a year, you're probably gonna break even or lose a little bit on TC card fees. Um, and the upside, obviously, is that if one of these cards does see play in standard, which some amount of them certainly will, uh, these cards are just like slightly too good. Aurelia saw play in the uh, aggro decks kind of towards the beginning of the season. Uh, these cards could very easily go over $10, and I think that's kind of where you want to hedge your bets. I like it. I'm going to go with Leyline of Anticipation at $2. Um, the card continues to trend down. It's currently $3, but overseas it's currently $2. I think it can hit $2 in the States and $0.50 cents on Bilas. Um In a couple of weeks, hopefully. I think this card is an easy $5 card um, after rotation, and there's a chance that it could see play in standard in the meantime. So I feel like this is one of those cards that... Even if it gets reprinted in a commander deck, it's free money long term. So I've picked a lot of cards that even got reprinted recently or printed recently. And honestly, I think this week that you just shouldn't buy anything. Uh, I think that if you haven't already picked up the things that I've talked about, then you can do that. But I really don't think that there's any reason to go buy cards at the moment. I I'm waiting patiently to see what gets uh, spoiled for the commanders stuff that will happen um, not this weekend, but next weekend, August 3rd and 4th at Gen Con is when spoilers for Commander 19 start. Uh, we've already seen uh, like two cards from Eldraine. Um, honestly, I would just hold on to your money and, and wait and see what, what happens. Uh, if you have fairies things like that spiked, 
Uh, I guess you could try to sell that if it's more than what it was previously, but I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to be stuck with a bunch of fairy cards that don't do anything because there were fairies on the invitation, but there's actually not that many fairies in the set. Uh, it's not a tribal set, and it's not going to have that kind of stuff in it. So uh, I don't know what you should do with it if you bought some. Uh, it's probably not a great idea, and you should get rid of it. Anything else? Nope. All right. Where can people find you guys? Uh, I'm Ed. You guys can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. I do all the U.S. shows with Tales of Adventure. Uh, we are on a bit of a lull. I will be in Barcelona this weekend. Uh, then I'm flying to Japan for the weekend after for European Shiba. Woohoo! See you there. No, I won't. Uh, and then... And then uh, we pick up U.S. shows again with GPs in Minneapolis and Las Vegas to round out August. I'm Jeremy. I have a 10K this weekend. I'm back on the cast. Um, Jim's looking at me like, why did you steal my turn? Well, I was gone for two weeks and Jim didn't upload, so it's all on him. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Missouri MTG. Um, I'm flying Douglas Johnson in to work for me this weekend for the Legacy 10K. I will be in GP Chiba the week after. I will be at GP Minneapolis the week after that, though not really on site. And I'll be in Vegas after that, though also not on site. So, yeah. Jim? My name is Jim Casal. You can find me on Twitter at PHROST underscore. You can find me in the very medium but very hot state of Florida. And you can find me on this podcast. And you can find this podcast at cartel underscore finance on Twitter, on YouTube at cartel aristocrats, on SoundCloud, on mtgcast.com, and of course on our sponsors, coolstuffinc.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. And as always, bye bye.